Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleading for truth. They trust in vanity, and speak lies. They conceive mischief, and bring forth iniquity. That is from Isaiah 59. The year 2020 has been marked by many as being a special year of difficulties. I have good news and bad news. It is much, much worse. You say, what's the good news? Well, it's been better than you might imagine. I have more good news, hopefully later. But I'd like to recognize the state which we stand in before God. What I just read to you was the declaration of God as he looked at his people. We are, in two words, totally depraved. When you look at yourself in the mirror, that might not be your preference. You might be paying more attention to uh, matters of grooming or thinking about your actions through the day, considering your uh, confidence and whether or not it is enough to handle what's coming, or considering other plans and things and schemes. But as you look at the Word of God, there is only one proper reflection for your state outside of God. We should recognize what God says there first. It says, His hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. God is the great I am, and his word is ever living. Being the I am means many things. That is the name he elected to declare for us, his description of himself that was most perfect. Which is to say, he is the most alive and ready to hear at any and every given moment. His ear has never dulled. He has always been ready to listen. And I pray this morning that you might also be like him and hear what the Word of God has to say about the state of man in his natural place. I have four primary things to consider for you this morning. The first is that we are depraved from the start. They were warned, Adam and Eve in the garden, that from the day they eat of it, they shall surely die. Surely die. Now, it is a form of grace that they didn't die physically that day, but spiritually, our shared father and mother died that day. And have been separated from the father ever since, to the point that they who walked with him physically in the garden hid their faces from him when he came. And how much more is that a picture of us separated? Our iniquities have separated between us and our God. It says in Romans 5, I have a few primary passages I'd like to lean on this morning and that if opportunity permits you as you go into the afternoon on this most sacred of days of the week, if you would follow the Berean call and study to see if these things are saying are true. The Ravens aren't playing till 4.15 and I assure you they're not worth it. Amen. But don't worry, the Jets are much less worth it. 
But the question is how we spend our time and consideration of these things, these most heavy and most serious of things. Yes, I jest about the way we spend some of our idle time, but this is the most serious of things to consider. It says in Romans 5 that by sin, by one man, sin came into the world, and death by sin then passed to all men. Now your first question about this should be, is this true and can we prove it? Well, who is the oldest person you know? Who is the oldest person in this room? We date Adam from the generations that are given in scriptures to have been alive something like six or seven thousand years ago, which means that we have had countless thousands of millions who have lived, and then again, every one of them, save two, have died. Every one of them. And so if you need proof that sin has infected the entire human race, your evidence is the shortness of the age of the people you know. And how much has been lost from generation to generation cannot be quantified. We should thank God that he has his word for us. But we all have times when sin convicts us, and it becomes much more evident than at other times. And I thank God for those times. I thank God that he has been kind enough to grant us repentance. And in those moments, we have the opportunity to consider our state. We may make the error of thinking that we come from a place of purity naturally. David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba and had planned and murdered his old friend so that he might cover up his crimes, when his eyes were opened, he wrote the Psalm 51. And in that psalm, he wrote that he was born in iniquity, born in iniquity in his mother's womb, that he began his life in sin, and that was his preference until that day, and that his eyes were then opened to the sure depravity of his station. And so we see the scriptures showing both our first fathers, from whom we gain any worthy inheritance, then by that one man, our repetition continues to share this sin, and more than that, all have sinned. But then we see this picture that even we, not just our Father, not just those who have come to us, but we are born in iniquity. And consider also the observations of God as he gave them to, him, gave them to us in Genesis. God looked down from heaven twice around the flood. Once was in Genesis 5 and once was in Genesis 8. First was in Genesis 5.3. And you get to hear, as revealed from heaven, a bit of the thinking of God. He says, it says that he looked down from heaven. Sorry, it's Genesis 6. It says that it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. And God said, My spirit shall not always strive with men, for that he is also flesh. Yet his days shall be in 120 years. And this was shortly afterwards, after the fall. But he says here that man has, from his youth, all his thoughts have been perverted and his imaginations have always been bent. And again, in chapter 8, he goes back to this, and he says, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, talking about a sacrifice that was made by Noah after he had just destroyed the whole earth. And he said that he found the sacrifice acceptable, but it said to, he said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. 
So we have this picture that God shows of us and him. And there's a particular distinction which we should all take great comfort in. The distinction starts with us. It says that the imagination of our heart is evil from our youth. Neither, however, will he smite anymore anything living. So we continue to pursue evil from the very time of our youth. All of our imaginations of our heart are often, often and always in idleness and in pursuit of either things that are from the outside may not seem so, but are violent and would desire to take and to steal and to rob and to cheat, starting with robbing God of his glory, which we'll get to that hopefully in a moment. But it says here that the opposite of that is that God, knowing full well the depravity of man, the destruction that we will reap upon his glory, his creation, and each other, it says that he, he declares here for us, will not curse the ground again. He will not kill everything as he has done, but also that while the earth remained, that we should have seed time and harvest and heat and summer and winter. I'm sorry, cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Now, the things we take for granted, but that we really shouldn't take for granted. For if the picture painted of us is quite so bleak, then we had better have a hope that it's something greater than us. And yet, as the seasons change, we have the opportunity to look outside once again. As we move, we felt it this week, and most especially last night as we came into this morning, how it was much cooler out than it had been in recent weeks. Now we're going to have another heat wave, presumably, before the fall comes in uh, with all its force. But we can see again that promise of God has not changed. There's many things we don't understand about how the earth works, but God promised that winter would always come, that summer would always come, that seed time and a harvest would always come, and that this is proof of his steadfast, unchangeable mercy towards us. Because again, he said that he would always stay his hand from our depravity. But not just, the problem is not just something that started in the beginning and uh, existed for a time, even in a distant past, in Adam and Eve, or in our distant past, in our youth. But it says... Jesus said, when talking about the things that men do, he gave us their source. Talking in Matthew 15, he had just said to them, They be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto this, the, us this parable. He said, Are you also yet without understanding? Do ye not understand that whatsoever enter into the body goeth into the belly, and is cast out into the draft? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But he with unwashed hands defileth not a man. And so the present living source of trouble for man, the source of his sin right now, is the heart. And so we were not just depraved from the start, we are presently depraved from the heart. And tragically, this remains true. All around us, we can see evidence of it. But the concentration here is that all of us have a heart. And we should take it very seriously that we see in, in the various uh, arts and poetry and songs of the world that so often is uh, implied that the heart is a good thing that starts out good and only gets better. And I often wonder if people who wrote these songs had young children. Because I don't think they could possibly have come to that conclusion if that's the case. But in Jeremiah, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? And if the heart is the source of 
a life that comes out of our body, both in the form of words and in other things, and what a tragic state we are in. But it doesn't just start with the heart. It reaches to the whole person. In, in Psalm 39, it says that we are at best, at our very best, at the very pinnacle of who we could possibly be, vanity. And that word is taken on many contexts in our modern day, but vanity simply means emptiness, frou-frou, the things of the world which are going to pass quickly. We have some quick examples of these things that get thrown in the fire and disappear, and then you have fashions and trends, and think about things like bell-bottoms. Right? It's a perfect example of vanity. And that's what we are at our very best. We look around and we say, but what about the good we can do? What about the good we have done? The Bible declares it is at best vanity. It gets worse than that, though. In the Psalms, there's one psalm that's actually two psalms. There is a single psalm that I'm aware of that is repeated in the Bible. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are duplicates of each other. They're not long. The Bible has seen fit to lay these things out twice, and so I'm going to read both for your hearing now. It says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. That is a very, very heavy saying. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? They were, there were they in great fear, for, the Lord, for God is in the generations of the righteous. He has shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. And again, Psalm 53. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity. And there is none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, any that did seek God. Every one of them has gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread? They have not called upon God. There were they in great fear, where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him that it campeth against thee. Thou hast put them to shame, because God hath despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When God bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. We should notice the theme of the psalm, that it starts out absolutely horrible for all of us, for every single one of us. This is the great horror story of human existence, that there is none good, no, not one. That saying is repeated twice in the Old Testament and then again in the New Testament. Three times, it's said. It's a thing that should be given extra consideration for when the Bible repeats things, they are of utmost importance. And when it's repeated three times, it's especially important. God is referred to as holy, 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 his chief attribute. There's no other attribute that's described in such a way, and that form of description is one that we don't necessarily use in our parlance. Sometimes we do. I mean, something was very, very tasty, you might say. You might repeat it for emphasis, but 
in the Hebrew and in their, in their culture, it was, it was very important if you were to repeat something. And so this being repeated, not just twice in the Old Testament, but again in the New, ought to reveal to us that this is the of utmost importance and should, we should stop and look at it. But the tenet here doesn't, or the, the psalm here doesn't just stop at that point. And if it did, beloved, God would be righteous and right. If he stopped and said, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. And that was the end of the story. He would be right. And we should praise him for his justice, for his goodness. We should recognize just how great he is. And yet, it goes on. And he says, Oh, that the, salva- that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When God bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. That is our hope, our most steadfast hope. That he should draw us back and have any concern for us in our absolutely depraved state. But what was the end of these actions? It says that we were dead in sin. Again in Romans it says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, the statement, come short of the glory of God, might at first seem to be just a passing addition to that statement. But, beloved, it is the culmination. It is the very thing that is so bad about our sin, so bad about our depravity. God created the world to reveal his glory. And yet we, in his creation, being his creation, in our depravity, have come short of it. This speaks to God, and it is an assault upon his person upon his goodness, upon his wisdom. It is a horror upon horrors. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what is the net effect of sin? What is the net effect of sin? You might say for a season that something that is uh, stolen is good for a little while. Even the Bible says that, that stolen bread is sweet for a season. But in the end, the payment must come due says of us who were dead in trespasses and sins. The wages of sin, the necessary payment is death. And it wasn't just Adam. And it wasn't just us in some distant past as children. And it wasn't just our neighbors. But it's us. We are they who were dead in sin. Necessarily. And rightly and righteously. The righteous judgment of God should make us dead in sin. And even Jesus says, speaking of those who uh, don't hear his voice, he says they cannot believe as though it was impossible. I'd implore you to consider the state of Lazarus. I won't read the whole passage now. I've been bouncing around the scriptures quite a bit. And if you even tried to uh, do as I recommended to stick to a certain passage this afternoon and consider whether these things are so, you might have to ask for my notes to know exactly where we went, right? But the reason for that, beloved, is because it is all through the Bible. It isn't something that you need to make up and then look for an explanation of it. But Jesus, when he went to go to Lazarus after he died, they encouraged him to go quickly. They said, come, he's sick. And he waited and he waited. And then they told him. And he told them before they did. He didn't, they didn't realize that he was speaking in euphemism, saying that he sleeps, knowing that he was dead. But the reason he allowed his friend to die, and even you might say ordained that his friend should die, is that you should all know exactly how Christ operates in the face of death when it comes to his beloved. He traveled then for days. And by the time he got there, they came out and they said, if you were here, he would be alive today. 
He said, but I know, this is Mary speaking, I know that we'll see him again in the resurrection. What great faith. What a wonderful thing. And we should commend that recognition and its original source. And we'll get to that hopefully in just a moment here. But Jesus' answer to her was very important. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. See, we value our life here below. And many of us might desire that it had continued indefinitely. And in some ways, we value it too much and certain elements of it too much. But we know, all of us, that we are going to die. As I said, we have the evidence of the shortness of the oldest generation around us. But Jesus came and continued, and he came to the grave, and Lazarus was so dead that they said that he stinks. He would definitely smell by this point. Three or four days decomposing. Now, this wasn't just some sudden death and resuscitation. No, this is a very, very bad case of death. His body was rotted and ruined. Beloved, I have good and bad news for you again. That is exactly our spiritual state. Ruined. Impossible to resuscitate. It isn't something that you're going to go out and just enjoy a a hearty or good or right time and then then your spirit will come back and, and be better. The inward man is dead because of sin. And yet Jesus walked up to that grave and he spake. His words are very, very important. I've heard it said that uh, it's important that he was very specific because he said, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead arose and walked. This is a great comfort to us. And I think that God's power is such that if he had just said, come forth to the dead, the entire graveyard would have had to rise up and answer. For he is, Jesus is the very fountain of life. But Jesus talks about this. And what a great comfort it is. But Jesus talks about this and how it happens. In John 6, Jesus says some things that I hope you all don't react the same way that his crowd did that day. Because those that were with him, after this conversation, many left. Many even of his disciples, not of the twelve, but many who had been traveling with him for a while and desired to hear of what he had to say. He was unfolding for them the truth. The truth that, well, we should recognize starting with every meal that we have. One of the reasons we give thanks at every meal is because without it, you will die. I wouldn't recommend testing it for too many days in a row, but if you did, that's what would happen. If you simply did not eat for a short period of time, despite all the manifest strength you might have, you might be in the full strength of your youth, and you go three days, and you will feel on the very edge of death. And you go a month, and you will be dead. And you will stink. Jesus was revealing to them that that was a picture of the very life that comes from the Father, that life that we rejected in our sin, that separation that we put between ourselves and him forever. He would again say to them, when they said that God had given them bread from heaven to eat, he said, Verily I say to you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Now again, beloved, He is assuming you are in desperate need of life. You have no life if he does not come. And this is he who gave you life in the first place, who animated your person, who the very very breath that's in your nostrils today was first blown into your first father's nose by the mouth of God. 
And that's gone from person to person to person to this very day. The very life that keeps you animated was first given in Adam has continued down till now. Isn't that an amazing thing to consider? What an amazing thing. And yet, the giver of that life knows that you once again stand in need of life. And you are not just what you were before life. You simply were not. Now, you are death. Death incarnate. Death carried around. And yet, Jesus would say later, the source of that life which would come. After those disciples I told you about left, said many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, which is to say that Jesus is the bread of life. It's a hard saying. It's different from everything he had been teaching before. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What if ye see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Beloved, there is hope. The very one who spoke to Lazarus that day in the graveyard. He said, the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Quickening life. And this is the very word which I've been leaning so hard on reading to you this morning. It's why I'm bouncing around the scripture so much so that you know that every portion of these, this scripture, this Bible, is life. And life abundantly. And most specifically, the things that came directly out of the word of, of Jesus' mouth. But he tells us the source. The source first is the spirit. You might wonder, why is it that Jesus now has spoke about the Father who sent him, and now the Spirit, when we know it's all about Jesus, isn't it? Beloved, death is so bad, our depravity is so horrible, that the entire Godhead worked together. It says that with his right arm, he worked salvation. He spoke creation into existence, but he got his hands dirty in saving us. What an amazing and a wonderful thing. The Son gives of his life. Just before this, this is the thing that he said that was so concerning. Again, he said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. That's a sad thing, isn't it? So that bread must not have been the bread of life, right? It must have been that temporal stuff, right? That could not actually save from the effect of sin. For the effect of sin is death. The effect of sin is death. And so that manna must not have been good enough. But Jesus says, this is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say to you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life. And I raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. This was the thing that they were all miffed at, that they were offended by, that so many of them left him. Is this man saying that we should, we should cook him over a fire and consume him? What Jesus was saying was that he would have himself be slaughtered the way that a lamb is slaughtered before eating it. That he would give up his life in the exact same way. That is a sad thing to hear. It's much more sad when you consider 
that he is the only man who has ever lived that did not deserve death. And so he took that unto himself for our sake. What a wonderful and a hopeful promise. I'd like to look again at Romans 5. Because the question is, if you are so totally depraved, if you are so dead, if you are so unprofitable, if the whole of your life is nothing but vanity, why should it be any different? What hope is there? What reason should there be for change? What reason should there be that you should even be able to consider life? I think that when Lazarus was in the grave, there was nothing he could do. There was nothing he could say. There was no doctor he could go to to alter his state. He was not. And so likewise, you were not. And yet, but. In Romans 5, verse 8, it says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us just before we were sinners. He didn't die for us after we stopped sinning. He died for us when we were yet sinners. How great is this God? Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, anyone who doesn't think that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same doesn't read the Bible. It says, we shall be saved from wrath. Whose wrath? God's. Because the assault upon his glory is a thing which rightly and justice cries out for answer to. There must be punishment. There must be the destruction of the things which have risen up against him. And yet, he died for us while we were yet sinners. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What a hopeful thing, beloved, that we are not to be saved by our life, but as he said, that he is the bread of life, that we shall be saved much more by his life, not just by his death, but by his resurrection, which should come after and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we now have received the atonement. And this is what I read before. Whereas, as, as by one man sin into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. Why? For that all have sinned. Therefore, I'm going to skip down to verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, and here is your hope. Here is your hope. If you truly are convinced that you are unrighteousness, that your actions are as useless as the wind, that your goodness is as good as filthy rags, which I always find very hard to say, if you know exactly what that is, but the scripture says it, and so it is the best description of all of our actions, the things we bring for him. If that is the case, and if we so stand in judgment then what a wonderful hope to hear this. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto the justification of life. The justification of life. For you see, death also came with condemnation. So it is fitting that the life we now are able to inhabit is called the life which is the justification of life. Whereas by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. 
And what a hope. I'd like to remind you again of what we started with. It says that the Lord's hand was not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Oh, much worse than death, beloved, much worse than condemnation, is separation from the Lord God Almighty. To no longer know, after having offended his glory, to no longer know his glory, to be kept afar from him, to no longer even be able to seek his face. That highest charge given to all Christians and all believers from the dawn of time, to seek his face, to no longer even be able to do that, to no longer have a hope of company with him. And yet it says at the end of that chapter, the Lord's answer to that was, As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit, my spirit that is upon thee. Does that sound familiar? That the spirit, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the scriptures say. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth. And there's a whole nother doctrine beyond the totally depraved state that you're in, total depravity as we call it, to talk about how that he shall preserve us. And I don't want to get into that today. I'd like to just stay on this one point. But it is a comfort if you fully uh, have come to grips with that state to know that God says, it shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. Not only has he answered our state of complete deprivation and death by giving us life, but he has promised to keep it there forever. That we shall not remain in such a state, but that we shall then be made alive again. And those things which we did in the first place cannot be done again. That he shall keep us forever. What a comfort. I'd like to leave you with this verse in First Peter. It is one of my favorite verses because of the comfort it gives us in just how much that God has worked in unison on us. You cannot say, as some might say, when who are children, you know, mom wants to give me this thing, but dad won't, so I know who to ask. That's not the state we have with our Heavenly Father. That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have worked in perfect unison for this singular goal for His. It says that in verse, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 3, in verse 18 of 1 Peter, it says, For Christ also hath once suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust. And beloved, if you hold at all to idea that you are the just, then he didn't die for you. He came to save sinners. The physician did not get sent to save the healthy. He, came, he was sent to save the unwell, the sick, and the dead. He suffered once for sins, the, uh, the just for the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God. Remember again, your iniquities have separated between you and your God. You have no place with him. And yet, Jesus' goal was that he might bring us to God, being put to dead, death, sorry, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So you see, the Spirit comes to quicken. Jesus came not just to die for us, but to live for us, both before and after death. If you remember what he said about where he went when he left, because I, I, I tell you, oftentimes I've wondered if it would have been better. And it's one of those things you want to be careful thinking because it is uh, contrary to him, but wouldn't it have been better if he was still here, if we could have all go to him and see him, if he was still alive walking the earth, wouldn't that remove all doubt from any of those who would speak against him? And yet he said that 
It is better that he goes away. If it wasn't so, wouldn't I have told you? But he said he goes, not just to give us life again now. And he didn't just start by giving us life in the first place, but then he goes to prepare a place for us, taking us from total and complete depravity, from our youth and from the youth of all of mankind, to not just life, but life abundantly, life that can't be taken away, and life eternal in a place that he has prepared for us. Thank you for your good attention.